Thank you for joining us today. It's October 27th, 2019. You're listening to the AEC Podcast. Today, Pastor Jesse Kaler will be continuing in the series entitled, Do You See, Hear, and Understand? Where we've been looking into some of the parables that Jesus taught. The topic today is deciding about Christ while you still can. The text for today's message is found in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Let's listen in. This is one of the hardest uh, teachings that we have from Christ. (laughs) Um, One of our own, Bruce Roop, taught this parable many, many times in the context of the life of our church. And he says, this is the one one place in Scripture that Jesus pulls the curtain back a little bit more about what happens after death. So, yes, we're going to be talking about themes of heaven and hell, and salvation, and assurance, and false assurance, and all, all this kind of stuff here in Luke 16. And I want to capture the heart of, of, I think, why Jesus is teaching this here. If I, um, if I were to say something like this, if I were to do something weird imaginary like this, and say, clear, right? You guys know what I'm, you know what I'm doing, right? Shock panels, right? To place them on the body and send an electric current of shock through their body in hopes that their heart would jumpstart and start beating again. And um, that, that's the context in which Jesus teaches this parable. He's literally there going, I am here to shock to life hearts that are flatlining and they don't even realize it. And that, remember, I want you to remember, keep this in mind as we go through this. He's... He's shocking them in hopes they awaken. He is not shocking them to scare them, to condemn them. He's doing this all in the hopes in which a nurse, a medical aide, a medical student would, would shock someone in hopes that they would come awake. That's, that's the intensity which this teaching brings us to. The theme in this parable is that our earthly status or position many times doesn't correlate with our eternal heavenly position. It's, it's hard to, to grasp the heavenly position based on our earthly position. So we're in Luke 16, and you can see right before in chapter 15 of Luke, the beloved parable of the prodigal. Who doesn't love that? We think, I think we pray about stewardship, and then we come to verse 13 of Luke 16, and Jesus clearly says, you cannot serve God and money. So Jesus is coming, and he's going to be approaching the Pharisees, who it says in verse 14, they were lovers of money. (laughs) And they heard these teachings of Jesus, all of them, but particularly this last one, and, and it says they ridiculed him. I'm in verse 14 of Luke 16. So they're ridiculing Jesus. And so he counters, and he, he sets up the parable. I'm going to go quick in this first little part, in the first three shocking truths, and then settle into the parable. Luke 16, verse 15 through 18 reads like this. And he says to them, Jesus says to these Pharisees who are mocking him, who are lovers of money, he says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. And that's not a comforting way of saying, God knows your heart. It's like a, ooh, people can't see your heart, but God does. And Jesus is kind of saying, and I'm God, and I see your heart, and it's ugh, right? 
And then he says this, For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. But since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forced the message that John preceded and now Jesus is proclaiming. Verse 17, Oh, but you followers of the law and the prophets, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Verse 18, For instance, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So this is what Jesus sets up. This is what comes right before this parable. It's, it, this is the motivation and the preface, if you will, to understanding why are we talking about heaven and hell and why are we talking about a rich man and Lazarus and all these, why, why are we talking about it? Here's, here's the, the setting. And as we begin, we'll, we'll start with the first uh, shocking truth. And it's some of what people call good, God calls shameful. That's what he says. What men exalt, put a badge of honor around. God looks at it and says, that's, that's detestable to me. We feel this in our society, right? The way our society treats and speaks of the unborn, of marriage, of sexuality. The way in which slander passes as politics and is glorified. We see that tension of, man, God's vision on all that stuff. While we love it, and those sitting in this room, God looks at it with disgust and we feel that. And we go, man, that's awful. It's sad when our culture praises immorality. That's what Jeremiah 8 referred to that, that, we, that people do. Jeremiah 8, 12 reads like this. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not all at all ashamed. They don't know how to blush. How about your own life? This is the shock panel saying, could there be things that you consider good about your life that God would say, that's, no, 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 no. We don't honor that. Are there things about your life that people have affirmed about you and you feel good from them and their praise when in reality God's saying, no, 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 no. I want a God vision when it comes to seeing things for what they truly are in our society and in my life. And the Pharisees do not have it. They are religious. They are above reproach. They have money. They seemingly, in the presence of everyone, give money away. But secretly, what are they? They're lovers. Of money, not of right? And usually if someone comes after you, you make it personal, right? I struggle to not take things personal. Jesus doesn't take things personal here, but he does get offended at their falsehood, their, their self-deception. This is what I love about Jesus. He is loving the Pharisees as he's calling them out. This is speaking the truth in love. And specifically, he's looking at them saying, you are a lover of money. 
and you're banking on the fact that your life is all put together, you kind of have all you really need, you're heralded by society as religious leaders, secretly you have plenty and more to live off of and to indulge in and enjoy. And you think, because you're blessed in this life, that automatically you'll, you'll be blessed in the next. I wonder if we ever succumb to that same wild temptation. I've been so blessed in this life, God must love me. And those of us with some of these, these tendencies, I think there are a lot of common things that we cling to in order to think after death I'll be okay. I mentioned one, our wealth, which is weird. Why would we ever do that? But we do. Our morality, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Or we lean on um, our family. My grandparents were strong. My parents were strong. And, and I fall in this line and we're hard workers. We've got all these great ethics and values. And so, you know, I think I'm, we lean on that. We lean on this secret understanding of, you know, people don't know my heart, but God does. Well, in this context, that's not a good thing. So Jesus is just leaning in and saying, let's not be self-deceived as to how, after death, we'll be ushered into the pleasure and the forever enjoyment of being in the presence of Jesus. That doesn't just happen. We don't just fall into that by accident. And in fact, without something drastically happening, that's, that's not where we're heading. And that's why verse 18 is so, so important. In the Old Testament about marriage and divorce. And what he's doing is he's shocking the Pharisees. The Pharisees were so passionate about the holy law of God and living holy lives that they added rules to it to show how holy they were. But in adding rules to it, they actually lessened the importance of holiness. Jesus gives us very clear, dude, marriage is supposed to be forever. Marriage is forever. Moses is the one, because of the fallen state of the people, he permitted men to serve a divorce certificate to their wives. The Pharisees went further than Moses, and basically, if you ruined a meal... The husband could divorce you. That's, that's the Pharisee standard. These holy, devout men, think about this. These holy and devout men had lost any grip on what is holy and right in living. And it makes me check my own life. But even more, I want to be reminded that holiness, to be holy, is the only standard in which one can make their way to heaven. If heaven is to be all that we dreamed it to be, it has to be a perfect place, doesn't it? Or else it ain't going to be heaven. So if heaven has to be this, can be there. Why? Because the holy triune God of the Bible resides there. And he ain't going to put up with anything less than holy. So, the standard. After I die and meet my maker, the standard for me in order to enter into heaven is 
Are you holy? Are you holy, perfect? Of course we are not. And that should cause us to cling to the cause of Christ, the cross of Christ, all the more. For holiness is our standard for salvation. Amen? And once we are holy in God's sight because of the blood of Jesus, holiness should be the mark of our life since we're going to heaven anyways. I'm afraid we've actually lessened value of holiness in our everyday life because, well, never going to be good enough. That's why Jesus died. Yeah, and he also died to let us know, let's get ready for what it's going to be like. Three, okay. All of that, he just throws out there one after another, but then he brings it all home in this parable. And if any of those points were confusing, great, we're going to move on. We got seven more, okay? This is what he does. Almost without any preface or any introduction, he just launches into verse 19. Here's the long, beautifully complicated, deep parable. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores Well, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, people may not be able to, and none may cross from there where you are to us. And he said, then, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. I, I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then, then they'll repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The first shocking truth, at least from the parable, the fourth one, at least in our context, is the reversal. A shocking reversal. And this is to be a warning to any Pharisee-like tendencies in our life. And this is to be such a deep comfort for any of us who have experienced depths of suffering that we can't even express to anyone else. There's a reversal The rich man on earth had everything he could possibly want materially. Can we relate? Probably more to this 
character than the other characters. All others all the time. He was so wealthy that apparently people laid Lazarus at his gate thinking, because this man is so wealthy, certainly he'll take care of this lame, crippled beggar at his gate. Can you imagine people being placed in your life because of thinking, certainly out of the overflow of your wealth, you will help them, and you don't? Your whole life? Doesn't it make you think, is there anyone in my life that's been purposefully placed there? Not to be a leech or a parasite, but because they genuinely need help. And I have means. That's scary. It gets me sweaty. Starts me flipping through the Rolodex of my mind of who's in my life that seems needy and I always just poo-pooed them. But in reality, oh my goodness, God has designed them to be there for me to take care of them on his behalf. What's more shocking is that the rich man was religious as well. He's crying out. He knows who Father Abraham is. He's apparently seeing himself as the son of Abraham. He knows. He knows of God. Well, Lazarus on earth he was in the most disgusting position on earth. Unable to move for himself. Unable. What an incredible position of our spiritual condition. Amen. No matter how you feel, we all are Lazarus spiritually. Wholly unable. Except from God's benevolent character to make, to make access possible into heaven. But in a really honest way in life, have you ever felt really dependent on other people physically to help you? And maybe in small ways you have, right? Well, there's a time, well, I really needed this person to come through, but how about your whole life? You need help just to survive. This is the contrast of the rich man's and the Lazarus position on earth. And if you think that was stark, the, the reversal of positions in eternity is so shocking. Both men die. Death is a great equalizer, isn't it? I mean, that verse, they die. He, Lazarus, and they just die. No matter your material possessions, your moral perceptions or perfections or imperfections, you die in all will experience the same scrutiny upon death. And what is so hard to grasp is who we think will be where won't be who actually is there. That's what's so unsettling. You may think you got a really good sense of who's going to be in heaven and who's going to be in hell. Man, I don't think any of us have a true grasp of that. Only God knows the heart. Only God knows who really is loving him first above anything else. Only God knows what another has truly done in their heart of hearts with regards to Jesus.
the rich man, notice in the story, he, we don't get a sense he did anything overtly evil against Lazarus. He didn't punch him when he walked by. He didn't lead 12 dogs to lick his sword. I mean, what, what did he do? We, we don't get anything. This is what we get. The rich man selfishly lacked in helping. Include caring for Lazarus. We call it like this. And this is where... It's the common cruelty of the rich man that condemns him to hell. Common to all people cruelty. But what elevates Lazarus? How did Lazarus get from there at the gate, unable, to Abraham's side in paradise? How? how? We don't get anything what he did. It's very purposeful by Jesus. It's to leave us wondering, do all poor people go to heaven? That's not the point of this parable. The speaker of the parable is saying, only I could have done something and authoritatively said something to take someone so worthless on earth and make them priceless in heaven. Only I, Jesus Christ, could do that. Clueless about the role of Christ in our eternal positions. And it seems there's going to be a great number of reversals that would shock us. Another shocking truth is after death, eternal positions are fixed. We saw that, right? Once again, this is such a stern warning. The rich man is crying out in anguish. Please, right? And very clearly, Abraham in the parable says, we can't get to you, you can't get to us. There's just this chasm. Lazarus, if you'd ever be a little insecure about your position, it'd be Lazarus because you've never had anything, you've never had any worth, but now you're ushered up to Abraham's side. Is there any fear of him losing that position or place or proximity and there isn't. Jesus uses a couple terms in this parable. And this will be, uh, I don't know if this is necessary or unnecessary, but I think it's interesting and intriguing. And it may throw some of you into a deeper study of, of the places in which our souls and spirits go. There are popular constructions of the afterlife for Jewish thought at that time. And there's much more to be said about this, but I'm just going to do a little brief primer overview. Many terms throughout the Bible are used of places that people go after they die. 1 Corinthians 15 states very clearly, nothing mortal can inherit immortality. So our bodies, which are mortal, stay here upon death. But our soul and spirits, which are immortal, they go on. We're talking about where, do one, where does one's soul and spirit go after they die? We're talking about that. 
Well, the Bible uses all different kinds of terms. Sheol, paradise, Hades, hell, Gehenna, heaven, Tartarus. Maybe in a simplistic fashion, using the framework from this parable, before Christ's resurrection, all of the Old Testament leading up to his resurrection, there was one place that the souls of those who died went to. One place. It was called Sheol. Many times it's interpreted Hades or the grave or the pit in the Old Testament. This place, you can kind of see it like this, top to bottom or above the top line. One place. It included all types of people and they had all different types of experiences. A major text for this is Psalm 49 verse 14 when it says, Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Sheol or Hades was one place some people experienced pleasure, like the good and the righteous, those who really believed and trusted in God, and others experienced anguish. Same place, different experiences. Like Cedar Point. Some people go there, they love roller coasters, others go there and they puke their heads off, right? It's the same, right? Did you get this concept? All of the Old Testament is covering like this. This remained until that middle portion between the two lines. That refers to Christ's death. Ephesians 4, 8 to 10 record that when Jesus ascended on high, seated next to the Father, he led a host of captives. In a common interpretation of Ephesians 9, it says, when he ascended, what does it mean that he had not also descended to the lower regions of Sheol? Common interpretation is that Christ went when he was buried for those two and a half, three days, he preached the gospel to everyone in anguish in Hades. And some of them he led as freed captives. And they found a new experience there in his presence. Oh, and it was pleasure. Others rejected him and they remained in anguish. One place still happening right now in our chronologically finite minds. But when Christ returns... New heavens and the new earth will be made, and Hades and the concept of death itself will be thrown into hell or the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 14, 15 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is when the permanent, eternal places for our souls of people will be established. Those in the new heavens will be clothed with new bodies. Glorious, holy, perfected bodies. Now there is a lot that I skimmed over, and you may have a million questions right now. And I just want to encourage you, dive into Scripture. Learn more. Psalm 20 90 verse 12 says, it is good to think upon death. You'll gain a heart of wisdom. It's, just, it's good to think upon these things. From the parable, the rich man cannot cross the chasm. So Jesus is he's exaggerating for effect. That upon his resurrection, you have no opportunity to change your eternal place. You don't know the time of your death. But until then, you can change where you will end up in eternity. 
Everything has to do with what you do with Jesus Christ. Everything has to. And whatever you do with Christ truly can alter your eternal destination forever. But once death comes, you do not have that chance any longer. 1 Peter 3.9, it emphasizes for us that God is being patient. He's being patient with us, longing for more to receive Christ. So we keep on with these shocking truths. Our positions are fixed, but this is something that I think now as we really dive into hell in particular, it's hard to fathom, but our conditions, once we're in those eternal places, are furthered. That's why eternity is so hard for us to grasp, but Lazarus is going to experience pleasure upon pleasure and joy upon joy and unending joy. Unending. The rich man he was without the common grace of God keeping it in check. Can you imagine if the common grace of God, which is this, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you are bumped up against a temptation and you know giving into it's bad but you really want it and God, it says, gives you a way out. Woo! 1 John 1, 9 says that even if you commit sin, you can ask and confess that sin to God and He is faithful and just to forgive you. Hell does not give you an off-ramp when temptation is faced and hell gives no relief for those who have committed grave sins. It's this realm in which the deepest sinful desires you have are unrestrained. You have no check in your spirit. You have no willpower to counter the temptation to do something vile against another person. That's absent. The rich man, he's there. And what is he doing? Hey, Lazarus, you're lower than me. Dip your finger and cool my tongue. Many commentators, and I firmly agree, even when the rich man is like, well, fine. If you can't save me, save my brother. Just send Lazarus. Send Lazarus there. He's still thinking some good in that motive. I don't know. Why didn't he say it for more people he knew, not just the family of his? Keeps it within the family. That is a scary place where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan is not both present, but only the kingdom of Satan. And it is an altogether glorious place where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan are not both present, but only the kingdom of God. Oh! That's enough to motivate you a little bit, isn't it? Gives you a different picture of even hell. How bad it real? How bad? Okay, there's flames and anguish. Wait, 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 wait. Your worst thoughts, you can do nothing to act on them. I think two, these two next thoughts are really related. The cry in hell is not injustice, but it's relief. Right, the rich man, please dip your finger in the water, cool just my tongue. Similarly, the cry in hell is not unfair, but warning. 
that the rich man is in Hades, or particularly hell, refutes the popular belief the fact that the rich man is conscious in hell, feeling things, talking, expressing, refutes the popular belief called annihilationism, where the wicked perish and they don't exist anymore. Suffering forever isn't a part of it. You just don't exist anymore. It's not true. The rich man exists, is conscious, and expresses that he's in anguish and he longs for Lazarus to cool his tongue. And if you can't do it for him, please go warn my brothers. We don't get any sense that he says, this is unfair. That's our cry in our day and age. It is unfair for a loving God to pour out his wrath on anyone and send them to a place like hell. That, that's the stumbling block for our generation. And much conversation should be had with anybody who has that question. But I want you to know Jesus is saying something in this parable, about those who end up in hell. They don't cry out, you're an unjust God. In that moment, they accept the verdict. They understand the verdict. They agree with the verdict. And they're filled with regret over not doing something before the verdict is given to them. And hence, to do something about it. It's an uncomfortable idea, but those who've moved on before you, passed on before you, can you imagine them crying out to you like the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future in the Christmas carol, Charles Dickens, crying out to you, warning you, avoid this. Cling to the cross of Christ. It's the only way you're made whole. It's the only way all the punishment that you will experience, you can be spared from that because Christ was punished in your stead for you. Run to him. Cry out to him. Accept him. Two more. We get towards the end. Incredible exchange between the rich man and Father Abraham. Abraham replies to his plea to, hey, send someone to go warn my brothers. And he says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets refer to the whole Old Testament. And you can see, you can see no, Father Abraham, says the rich man, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Scripture, according to Jesus, is enough. It's sufficient and, dare we say it, superior to communicate how one readies themselves for death and prepares themselves to face the judgment of their maker. Scripture alone is superior and sufficient to tell them when you face your maker, this is what you go armed with. Scripture alone is sufficient in communicating clearly how one can be saved and enter into eternity in heaven. We search for additions to Scripture. We couch it in scriptural Sorry, spiritual language. Well, if I could just feel and sense the Holy Spirit. And we devalue the Holy Spirit's ministry 
According to 1 Corinthians 2.12, it says this, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. The Spirit's ministry, one of his major ministries I never want to devalue, I want to elevate the Spirit's role in our congregation's life, is he gives us understanding into the very things of God from the Word. The Spirit's incredible ministry is this. Hey, read this. It is a miracle. That is the Spirit's illuminating work, awakening you by the shock panels of Scripture to, oh, I need Christ. I desperately need Christ. That's the work of the Spirit in your life. And you're so busy saying, I just want to feel Him. I want my spine to tingle, and then I'll know for sure. I want a mind that understands the Word of God. And then I want to say, God, thank you for your spirit. Scripture says plainly, and let us all hear Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Oh, just Scripture. most beautiful thing I've ever read. May Scripture become more important to us. May the Spirit's ministry mightily work within us and through us. And may it work in you now. Last point. <clears throat> Unbelief is absolutely absurd <laughs> in light of the resurrection. Isn't that great at the very end? He says to him, should rise from the dead. And then you know what God does? He says, I know Scripture's sufficient, so I'm going to give you, still, because I love you, a sign above all signs, a resurrection. You asked for a sign, and it's wicked because I gave you the word, but I'm going to give you the word <laughs> and a sign. Resurrection of Jesus Christ. God actually bends and gives into our wicked desire for, well, the word isn't really clear. Give us a sense that you are real, God, that this is real, that there is life after death, that life after death is worth thinking about, and I can do something about it. Then he rose Jesus from the dead. Those three passages, though, are scary. John 12 records, verses 9 through 11, that a real-life man named Lazarus was risen by Jesus Christ, but the chief priests, it says, made plans to put Lazarus to death. Because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Acts 20 records a young man named Eutychus who falls asleep during a long sermon. He falls asleep and falls out of a window and dies. Because he fell asleep. No, not because. <laughs> he dies. Paul, Paul goes and raises him from the dead. But then Paul had to labor on well into the night, it says, continue preaching. The he just died and fell because your sermon was long. And you let us know your sermon is real by rising from the dead. But then, you know what, we're still going to say, well, what about this? And Eutychus is here like taking notes. Oh, yeah, what about this? And then we have Matthew 28. It records what the elders they gave sufficient sums of money to the soldiers after Christ's resurrection and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while they were sleeping. And this story has been spread among the Jews and others to this day. 
The sign of signs was given in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that life after death, he holds the keys. He can save us from the anguish of hell. And in warning us of the anguish of hell, we know of his love. May we never know of his wrath and suffering in hell. My question is this. Have these truths shocked you and awakened you? They were supposed to, not because I'm powerful, because Christ tells them this way. In any way, shape, or form, did any of these truths shock you and hit you? Do you wonder right now with Christ? And maybe you're wondering, well, I'll let him stay there knocking for a while and I'll go play and live my life and another time I'll come back. But I want you to know if death, your untimely, unknowable death comes, he will not be standing at the door knocking anymore. He'll be at the judge's seat hammering the gavel of a guilty verdict. Our need for Jesus to save us from the anguish of hell is real, as real as hell is. And it's right for every believer and unbeliever to with great urgency surrender and to continue to surrender to Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Lord, with heads bowed, I'm going to ask something. Lord, as your spirit moves and works, I want to ask if anyone is moved by your spirit, to salvation in Christ alone this morning to just lift their head and eyes at me. If that's you this morning, just lift your head and eyes to me so I can pray with you, so I can celebrate with you, so our church can know where you stand with Christ. If anyone, Lord, now for a different reason, just feels shocked by the reality of things that maybe they don't talk about a lot or hear, a worry. And they would love assurance. Would you minister to them right now? Would they find the words of Scripture to be sweet as honey to them? And would they experience the very presence of Christ in your spirit, which you pour out to all those who love you? Thank you, God, for this meaningful time. We love you. And we go in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We want to invite you back next week as we continue the sermon series on the parables of Jesus. We'll look at the nature of grace and what it means to be grateful. We encourage you to read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16 as you prepare for the message.